Welcome everyone to the Work Matters Podcast, where we discuss what matters at work and how to make it better. I'm Robert Richardson here with Dr. Steve Hunt. Steve, what matters at work today? Deskless work, Robert, or sometimes called our hourly work or frontline work. These are the jobs of people that are not on a computer, that are out typically working with customers or building stuff or fixing stuff. Most of us at some point in our life have had jobs like this. Have you ever had a job like a deskless work job, Robert? I did. Those are all the types of positions I had putting myself through college. I was a server at too many restaurants, probably. Um, I also taught kids to read in schools. Yeah, I spent a lot of time outside of the desk. I actually had a job where I was a busboy. I had a job where I sorted the waste stream of San Diego County into 65 different categories. And you know, the funny thing is that the waste stream one sounds more disgusting, but actually was a better job just because the way it was managed. But I think, and it was fascinating what we throw away. I I was a busboy too. So we have that in common. I didn't know you were a busboy at some point. It's, you know. It's, uh, I don't know how much I tap into my busboy skills on my current job. But the thing about deskless work is it is the bulk of people working. I think we are really lucky today because we're talking to Muriel Clausen, who's the co-founder of Anthill. It's a company that focuses for people who don't sit at a desk or a computer. How can you find the best deskless jobs and how can you make it better? And how can you get the most out of that experience as well as also if you manage people in those jobs, how can you make it a more positive work experience? So Muriel, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Why does the frontline deskless worker matter so much to you and how does that influence your own career? Yeah. So growing up, uh, we moved a lot, but I mostly grew up in Alaska. Um, And as you can imagine, Alaska has a lot of deskless workers. Most of the people I went to high school with did not go to college. They went into the trades. I have family members who are truck drivers, commercial fisher people, people who work in fields and plants and on highways. And so I was really familiar with this work. And I knew that it's something that a lot of people invest their lives in and actually love. Many years later, fast forward, I was a graduate student um, working on a PhD in a field called industrial organizational psychology. Quite a mouthful, but just means what's actually going on in the work experience for these workers. Um, That's what we study. My first publication in graduate school that I I got to work on, we actually did this huge study where we looked at all of the different research that had been done on the workforce over the last two decades and a big, what's called a meta-analysis. That's where you compare a bunch of studies. And what we found is that if you look at the sample size, the population that they actually were uh, researching, less than 2% of the people they ever studied were a part of this deskless workforce population. And actually this deskless workforce population is over 80% of the global workforce. So I just was fascinated by that. I thought, wow, I know these people. I know that they're out there. We know by the numbers that they're out there, but their stories really aren't being told in the research. And then a lot of work I did later as a policy advisor, but also advising companies, I realized their stories really aren't told in companies. These workers are critical to society for obvious reasons. They keep our world moving, but there's so little that we've really been able to know about them and thus so little support that has been kind of tailored to them. So that really is where the passion comes from. I think that's such a good point. You know, we talked about essential workers during the pandemic, almost all the essential workers were people in these kinds of jobs. These are the people that actually affect our lives the most. Yet I do sadly sometimes think they're kind of Put in the background in a way. You don't hear a lot of profiles in the Wall Street Journal or whatever about people like in these roles, unfortunately. One thing that might be important is really to define what do we mean by a deskless worker or a frontline worker? There's a lot of debate out there, even 
as to what to call uh, the people we're concerned with today. So Muriel, would you take a second and just tell us who we're talking about? Yeah. So I think the best way to define deskless work is by what it isn't. So a lot of what we uh, like to say is, oh, everybody worked from home the last two years. Wow. The whole world was working from home. But actually that wasn't true. Over 2.5 billion people never worked from home and they probably never will. And probably some of those 2.5 billion are listening to this and you're like, yeah, I heard about all these things changing with work, but I was still going to my workplace. And the reason that you were and that these workers were is because there are several industries where the vast majority of jobs just cannot happen from home because they don't happen at desks or computers. The eight industries most often lumped together to represent the deskless workforce are manufacturing, transportation, construction, retail, hospitality, agriculture, healthcare, and education. Now, healthcare and education are the two that we all started calling kind of the frontline workforce. And that's one that there's been some bleed over that term, but I like to kind of put those in their own bucket because we do see those workforces do have distinct needs. But everybody else I just mentioned, the term that's emerged that we all call this workforce is the deskless workforce. And really what that means is they're not working at desks, typically not working at computers. What I think is most striking about this population and these people is all those jobs I just listed, manufacturing, actually making the goods that we use, transportation, getting things places. We've all been talking about supply chain over the last two years, construction, building the homes we live in. These are critical jobs. And too often this workforce feels invisible and disposable because they are disconnected from their employer. These jobs... All of us, like both Robert and I, we we had jobs like this. And I can I say an example I gave that, you know, my job when I was a busboy, I was completely exploited. They made me show up and sit around. And I was like kind of powerless because I was one of my first jobs ever. And I just felt lucky to have work. And they literally would make me sit up and not clock in until it was busy enough, even though I'm stuck in the restaurant, right? Contrasted to that other job I had that was like sorting garbage, but it was actually a fascinating job because of the nature of the work, but also the way we were managed was much different. So if you look at it from that perspective, so many, whether it is a job that somebody takes on their way to maybe becoming a desk bound worker, or there's somebody that that is the career that they're pursuing, um, you know, these jobs, they range from fascinating to rewarding, low pain. Some of them, some are physically dangerous. Some are really good. Some of them are really bad, if we're honest, I think. If I'm a person looking for this kind of employment or I'm in this employment, how can I know before I start working for a company that this is a company that I want to work for? This is the kind of job that I'm going to be treated well. Is there something people in this population can be looking at as they're looking for jobs? Yeah. So I think the first thing is like, what does make a, a deskless job potentially great? Because yes, there are definitely deskless jobs that aren't great, but there is a huge benefit to deskless work that is often overlooked. And that is that you actually get to have more boundaries with work. Something that is a huge kind of mental health crisis really is how much people's lives are inundated with work 24 seven, but also you're never really done with any of the things you're working on. There are these ongoing projects that you could be working on something for six years and you're never done. When you take on a deskless job, you typically are more bound to specific kind of projects and schedules that really allows you to sometimes not be working. And I think for everyone who chooses to go into these jobs, that's something that they made a conscious kind of, I don't want to maybe go the path of college. I don't want to become a computer scientist, some of these things. 
often that's the number one reason that we hear that people have chosen this. So I think that is obviously like, if you're trying to decide is, is decibels work right for me, I would first think, is that something that's really important to you? And for a lot of folks, it is. The other thing though, that I think overarches, like, how do you, if you are going to be a decibels worker, how do you choose your employer? I think the first thing to know going into it is that they need you. Right now in the United States, there are 0.6 workers for every open deskless job. They have to be an employer of choice for you. You are in the driver's seat. And I think that hasn't been true for a while. We're seeing a kind of dearth of people going into deskless work, but it's true now and it's projected to grow and grow and grow. So you are in the driver's seat. You get to choose your employer. And I know sometimes it doesn't feel like that, but that is what the numbers tell us. It is true. So what are the things you should think about when you're choosing that employer? There's four main things I encourage people to look for. The first is when you're looking for a job, do they meet you where you are? Are there a million kind of login screens and hurdles and extra information you have to send and extra forms to fill out and things that are just disrespectful of your time when you're trying to get a job. That is a huge signal to you of how they're going to treat you once you're there. I've actually worked with a lot of companies kind of in more of an advisory role. My company today doesn't do anything pre-employment, but I work with a lot of companies on their strategies around this and they have technology. They have ways that they could actually pre-screen you even in a text message, pre-clear you for a job set up a quick phone call with you and have you fill one of these roles. That's something that they have the access to. So if it's a million steps for you to try to even talk to somebody about a job, that's not an employer that's proactively thinking about meeting you where you are. I would be cautious proceeding forward with that employer. Yeah, I think on that, that's a good example is if they don't treat you kind of the way they treat their customers in the sense that if you're a customer and you go to a company and they make it really hard for you to actually buy their products, you're like, why am I going to buy it? If they don't treat their candidates that way, it's probably not better once you get hired necessarily. So what are the other ones? You said there's like four. So that was the first one. Yeah. So the second one, and this is something we've seen across a ton of data and research now over the last five years, small employers often are better experiences for deskless workers. Pretty consistently across the board, smaller employers, more local employers tend to, to lead to better kind of employee experiences. And you can often, more often in your community, hear about kind of, is this a good place to work? What I would say, I think, is that you can get a better experience with a smaller employer, but you can also the worst experiences, I think, can be yep. small employers. 100% true. It's curvilinear. So small employers are the worst or the best employers. But if you're looking for a place to long-term build your yeah. career, small employers often just perform better in the data. Well, you can stand out. They, the they can see you better, but that could be a yeah. good thing or a bad thing. I see the point. You can know the owner potentially, or you can know that if there's a good person, that's going to be a good company. Yeah. I think that's really good. So we got two, oh, two more. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So here I'll, so here I'll pay some lip service to the larger employers. So larger employers, what can you do if you are looking at a larger employer, one of those brand name companies, considering if you want to take a job there? Um, there's a few questions that I encourage you to ask. One is how long does the average person stay in this role? For most of these big companies, they actually have most of their attrition in that first 90 days. It's because people get in there and realize immediately, this is no place for me. This is no good. If you're hearing that it's less than a year or even less than those 90 days that the average person stays in the role, that should be a red flag to you. And I think there's a way to ask this question too, where you show like, Hey, I'm really trying to build a career here. How long is the average person staying today? That shows that you're, you have good intentions, but that's a critical, I think, question to ask. 
like a related question, Mural, I wonder is asking the person like, who's your manager? Did you start out in the company as an hourly employee or mm -hmm. is that common? Because I think of some of our customers are phenomenal for people building careers. And they, as they oh, said, man. we want, we get all of our store managers and senior vice presidents who came up through the ranks. And what that means is we put a strong focus on these people. It's a different way of thinking them. Whereas other ones, and I literally have heard this, I heard this once and I was pretty disgusted about it referred to frontline workers as though those are throwaway employees, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and they don't care that we have 200% turnover. We'll just find another body. Yeah. And I think sometimes I even look at like, do they have an opportunity for you to even ask these questions? There's a couple layers I'll add to this, that if you're not going to get someone answering these questions for you, the places you look online for feedback of an employer as a deskless worker are different than a lot of desk workers. A lot of the employer rating platforms that you'd maybe use if you're trying to get a desk job, those don't really have a lot of reviews for these employers that are relevant to your role. But if you're looking for something relevant to your role, where most of these kind of employer reviews live are on forums. A common one is Reddit. There's a forum that's actually, I'm not endorsing it necessarily, but I find it really fascinating to read stories there. There's forums and Reddit that share a ton of different experiences workers have had at different employers and call those employers out. Um, so forums like there's one called anti-work where people share terrible horror stories from their occupation, run a quick search on the internet of just the employer thinking of working at Reddit. And I'm sure you'll see if examples come up or not of comments people have made about really bad experiences. That's a good way to exclude those really bad situations. But then additionally, most employer reviews for deskless jobs sit on Google reviews on the internet. So where typically people would maybe go to write customer reviews, just Google the company up on that kind of star rating, click in, read what some of those comments are. You'll see a lot of employer reviews just sitting right there. For example, like even really big retailers like Walmart, if you look up a Walmart location, most of those reviews, a lot of the time are actually about the employee experience working there. So that's where you kind of look for those reviews. When you do that search, one, if you discover maybe this place I don't want to work, well, that's good to know in advance. But if you discover it's really good in yeah. the interview process, if you say, hey, I searched on your company and I heard this, this, and this, it's positive, that's going to help you get the job. That's more than your typical candidate when you really dig in and do research on the background of the company. I think that's that's a win-win as far as spending time doing that research. And it doesn't take a lot of time. I, I love the uh, ant. It reminds me of those... I don't know if we'll have to edit this out of the podcast, but there used to be a website called Eft Jobs. <laughs> yeah. Well, so they've actually been getting a lot of media coverage, that particular Reddit thread. There's others like it, but that, that one's kind of top of mind because it's been in the media a lot lately. But it's just people sharing real experiences of them working. And, and I think it's, if you can find that on a place you're trying to work, I think it's good to know before you get there. Apparently I need um, to spend more time on Reddit because everybody always talks about Glassdoor. You're That's not going to find many there. I mean, certainly look there, look at all the typical employer review platforms. But what we've found is we kind of have to give workers a little bit more creative avenues to find that information. And then for some reason, Reddit has just become this sounding board to talk about your employer recently, which I like that workers are finding a way, finding a place to tell these stories. I check it constantly because I find these experiences fascinating and they help me get better at what I do. I think we have three. Is there one more or did I yes. miss it? Yeah, this is the last one is the most important one. 
this is all around what is the actual potential of you being able to build a long-term career at this company? What I think sends a really good signal to your potential employer, but also gives you really good information is to ask if I'm a top performer here, what's next? What's the next opportunity that I can kind of earn at your company? If they're completely befuddled by that question, that's not a great sign. It's really, really important that you have a path for promotion in this company and that they have some thought through way that they're thinking about that. A lot of the companies that I've worked with they right now don't even necessarily have a way to know what other skills you have outside of what you've been hired for. Uh, maybe you've been a forklift operator before, but you're coming into a picker packer role in a warehouse, like finding out that they actually are looking for opportunities to get you back up to that forklift operator role or something like that is really, really important. And that's just a crucial question to ask in any kind of pre-hire process. Right. I really like that because again, when that's going to make you look good as a candidate too, have that yeah. attitude. But the other one is that every job is an opportunity and it may be opportunities you weren't aware existed. And so if you're going to devote a lot of hours of your life to something, do it at a place where there may be opportunities, if you, even if you're not thinking that way. Because I've met people in my life that you know have gone on to have like careers where they started actually in deskless jobs. And they said, I didn't plan to do this, but I did something and it opened a door for me. I think that's a really great way to think about it. You never know where you're going to find opportunity, but go to places where there is opportunity, right? Yeah. And I'll actually throw an extra one in for free. There's a lot of companies that have promoted executives, even the people making the decisions in that company from deskless roles. An often touted example is like UPS. They, all of their executives had more entry-level roles somewhere in the company. But there's a lot of companies that I work with where say it's a large uh, supply chain company, all the executives at one point drove trucks, drove routes. And so looking for those employers where actually you see in the C-suite of the business or in the leadership of the business, people who have done the jobs that you're coming into the company with. I think too, one of those things on that is the culture of the company where the people at that level appreciate what it is, these jobs, they know how hard they are. They know the, the, the reality of it. I think that's, you, you see that difference in companies. For sure. The four that you talk through in a lot of ways, it dovetails nicely into this next question because, you know, it's kind of about influence and control. Many of your tips are about how do you ensure you have some level of influence over your own career and control over where your career goes. If you are an employee in a deskless job, often you do end up feeling like you don't have a lot of influence or control over the work that you do. What advice would you give for somebody who is already in that role? Yeah. So first of all, I think it's important to know that like your employer probably does want your feedback. Like they do want to know what you think. It's, I would say there's very few exceptions to that, especially if you find whatever HR person is leading the employee engagement survey or anything like that, they would love if you responded. I assure you. Often what's going on is that they're not sure how to reach you. They're not sure how to get mm -hmm. your feedback. So first and foremost, I would say like ask for the opportunity to give feedback, ask to be included in the employee engagement survey. Most companies today do at some point survey or ask for feedback from their employees, ask to be included in that. Even if you ask for a paper copy that you can turn in, that gives you a chance to just kind of fill in bubbles and you don't have to put your name on or anything, but yeah. can fill it in. Look for those opportunities and let people know you want that. HR often, you know, they're in a 
trailer in the lot outside the warehouse or something like that. I'm sure if you came by and said, hey, myself and my colleagues, we'd like to fill out your survey. Can I distribute paper copies? They will hug you. <laughs> they will love that. <laughs> yeah, I really like that because I think so often employers are perceived as not caring. And it oftentimes is not that they don't care, but that they don't have a good mechanism by which to communicate with a deskless worker or a frontline worker. What yeah, are- for sure. And if they're sending everybody the survey link via email, but then your entire plant, you don't have company emails, you're not sent the link, you're not going to get an opportunity to participate if you don't ask for it. There's other things we could talk about around solving that issue more broadly, but as an individual, ask for the opportunity. I'm sure they'd love to give it to you. What about more sort of tactical level? Sometimes people in these roles feel like they don't have a voice. They don't have an influence. What's the right way to approach your manager to change the nature of your work? Now, that's a great question. And I think that is a particularly sticky one. First and foremost, if there is any system set up in your company designed to give you an opportunity to anonymously share feedback, I know that feels a lot safer for folks. I would first take that option. A lot of your companies, you might not realize that your company might have a hotline. That's a common situation, they might have some kind of comment box. If you're not comfortable actually talking about your issue, which I know most of the things we see happening in companies, it's things people don't necessarily want their name tied to. Your company probably has some, if nothing else, a safety reporting system, maybe try to use those channels. But let's say you got to go talk to somebody face-to-face. I would, first of all, I would always look for the helper, look for the person that seems like they're most interested in actually making the workplace better. Maybe that's HR in your company. Maybe that's an ops person who had your job before. If if you're doing hauling for trucks at bays, the person who is leading that team, almost always when we work with these folks, they had your job before. So that is often a safer person to talk to. But also I would just always package it in what's true for you is you want to be successful here. You want to stay at this company. You want a long-term future with the company. And so that's why you're asking if you're not lazy. So you want time off. It's that you want a schedule that works um, so that you don't have to quit your job. All of your ops leaders right now, all of your HR leaders, they're probably tasked with reducing turnover. So if you give them kind of a golden bridge to retaining you, I think they'll often walk across it. So um, making sure you're packaging as it, I want to be here. I want to be a part of this team. I need these adjustments to make that possible. The other person in that conversation is the manager. So if you said, if the bulk of the population of employees is people in these deskless frontline jobs, probably the next level is people managing people in these frontline jobs, which can be a very difficult job because you're kind of stuck between corporate, hit the numbers, get the schedules, keep the pay levels down, and then the employees, and you're like in the middle. What advice would you give to somebody who's in that role. So one of the biggest barriers to this that we see is to really factor in, are you being language inclusive? And this goes beyond just can everybody speak English? Is that everybody's actual preferred language that they're most confident and comfortable in? A lot of the deskless workforce are proficient to speak English for their job, but when they're trying to share something that's maybe a little more emotionally charged or challenging for them or something that is important to them, like give people the opportunity to communicate with you in the language that they're most comfortable in. That goes a long way. We've worked with companies that have told us in advance, like, oh, don't worry about offering any other languages. Everybody speaks English. And then we had 60% of the users at that location were Spanish speakers on their platform. So 
I think you don't always know what language folks are going to be most comfortable in, but giving opportunities for people to share things with you in their language of choice. There's so many great translation tools to make this work that are free. There's products like ours that make this easy. You can figure out a way to help your workers share feedback with you in their language of choice. Just reviewing a technology that will translate what you're saying in real time. So there really are tools mm -hmm. out there. I'm speaking English and it would write Spanish on the screen for you to read or on a little uh, lapel. Uh, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm sure and that's actually one of the cornerstones of Antil is like auto translation into over 110 languages, both ways immediately in text message. That should be the norm of Very solutions. Cool. But even if you don't have a technology solution kind of in your company, you can always go on Google translate and send a note to a team member, at least on some level translated into a language that they're comfortable with. That goes so far in showing that you're trying as a leader. You're showing you're sensitive to their perspective. One thing I think it's important for supervisors to know is that often for the deskless workers, they haven't had a work culture for years of being encouraged of like, you get to have a say and tell your employer what you think and all these things that maybe desk workers hear. So know that it's probably really uncomfortable to approach you for any conversation. So finding ways that people can do so anonymously, I think is really critical, but basically building yourself with the people you supervise. And I know a lot of supervisors in this space, you don't have a small team, you have 300 people in a plan. It's, it's a big group, but giving people some safe way to share things with you, even just saying people can, that goes a long way, but then showing it with your behavior over time, bringing up in your safety briefings, Hey, in the comment box, I heard these things are happening, like water fountains broken in the plant. We're going to focus on getting that fixed, just building that trust over time. You know, it reminded of some good authentic leadership conversations we had in an earlier podcast, but it's that point too of being open to when you talk about things are broken and I hear it, you say, it's okay. I'm not going to get mad when you point out things that need to be fixed. I want to know them, mm -hmm. but that sharing what isn't working in a constructive way, I think uh, builds that. That's really fascinating. Yeah. And the water fountain is actually a real example. We had a plant that was about to have a, over 200 employee walkout because the water fountain wasn't working and it had been hot. People were frustrated. We were able to find that out and do something about it. But imagine if that same workplace, they hadn't been told there was nobody ever said anything. You're losing all those workers. That's so expensive for your company. Definitely doesn't look good to no. your superiors. It's interesting if you get into the unionization thing, which also comes in this population, that one of the biggest predictors, this is, I'm sure you know this, but is voice. Just mm -hmm. people feeling they have a way to express an opinion and somebody's listening to them. And Absolutely. so as a leader, what can you do to make sure people feel that they have a chance to express voice? Yeah, for sure. Um, I have a couple more. One is to really stay focused on the practical. A lot of times, I think this happens more to maybe HR leaders than maybe people who have had these jobs before and been promoted to lead them. We can sometimes just like get too fancy for our own good. We can get too creative for our own good and think, oh, I'm going to organize a goat yoga retreat and everyone's going to be all happy or things <laughs> like that. Like most people, we get thousands of comments every day through our platform. Like most people, what they're asking for is so simple and it's so small and it's just the practical stuff. So I would also say, don't overcomplicate the support you're providing. People are looking for just basic dignity, respect, and the opportunity to 
be at work and have flexibility when life gets in the way and they can't. So really focusing more on those practical pieces. And then the last one I'll say is if all you're doing is emailing everybody, just know probably nobody's seeing it. Go look at your stats. I do this a lot of times with the business leader. I say, go look at the stats of your direct reports. How many people have actually ever opened an email you've sent? It's probably really, really low. Nobody's seeing your emails. So just making sure there's a cork board in the safety lounge or anything like that. Don't just share information via email, share information in a way that people are going to see. And all the things I just touched on until is very focused on doing with our platform that we can scale across a company, but everything I just mentioned too, there's small ways you can start to do those things yourself. If you're ready for a technology, there are technologies that can help you do this these days. Antil's one of them, but there are creative ways you can implement all of these things yourself. I'm curious, as you're looking at the future of this work, what do you think companies should be doing other employees or employers to bring this together so it doesn't become this overlooked, only 2% of the research is looking at this group going forward. Yeah, I think actually, so my advice is more even just for everyone, like society at large. I think we've have to change the conversation around this type of work. Since like the 1930s in this country, we've talked about, oh, you got to go to college and go pursue that kind of career. And that is an awesome choice that I myself took. And it's the right choice for a lot of folks. But I think broadening our horizons on what is like a great kind of life course and what a great kind of working life looks like is critical Um, and telling more of those stories because where we're headed right now, there are not going to be enough people doing these jobs to keep life moving the way we want it to. That's why wages are going back up. There's already too few people going into these jobs. And I think we have to change the narrative and we have to put the same importance on these roles that we put on being a computer scientist, for example. These are really critical jobs. Technology, every time we try to replace these jobs in workplaces so far, they actually just create more of these jobs. Um, There's been this, what we call the capitalization effect, technology actually creating more jobs in deskless settings. So these jobs aren't going anywhere anytime soon. And so we have to think about how are we talking about this option to even high school students as they're thinking about their next steps? And is there a lot of dignity tied to choosing this path for yourself? These are great jobs. They're important jobs. There's a big argument to be made that they're better for mental health if you have a good one of these jobs. And I think we just have to change how we talk about them. I love that point. Employers need to respect these roles more, but also individuals when they're thinking about their future, there's a tendency not to want to think about doing one of these roles because you grow up caring. You want to be a lawyer. You want to be a doctor. Yeah. I I think also the personal level, um, whether you're in one of these jobs or not, respect these people for the work they do. I think that, and recognize how hard it is. I One of the phrases, and I'm glad it's going away, was this concept of unskilled labor. There's no such thing as an unskilled job. When that person drops off that ordered gift or when you go to a restaurant or whatever, recognize and respect the contributions people are making. I think that we have a tendency sometimes to downplay just the value these people provide. That's really good advice. So, wow. Well, Muriel, thank you so much for appearing on Work Matters. Thank you both. Really appreciate it. Wow, Robert. Once again, that that was really just a deep dive into an area of work that affects so many people that, as Muriel pointed out, it it is overlooked, even though a lot of us worked in these jobs, it's even overlooked. You think it would get more attention. What were some of the things that you took away from that conversation? 
I really like her summary towards the end of our conversation. You know, the, the dignity of these workers from multiple perspectives, from that of the employer, and even how the average person thinks about these workers. I feel like we have we have a struggle in our society that that we need to dignify this type of work a whole lot more and think about it differently. Yeah. And I think on the point of the people working in these jobs, what was really positive is your point of you've got a lot more influence you realize as long as it, like so many things in life, approach it constructively. Approach it like I want to work for a good company and that's why I'm asking you these questions. Feel empowered if you're in a job like this, you have more power. And I think on the manager side, keep the conversation open. We tend to focus on this podcast about kind of timeless lessons, but let's put out there that we are at a historically low unemployment rate. And so if you are listening to this in 2022, it is very likely you can leave your job and find a higher paying position if your organization is not respecting you with the kind of dignity that you deserve. Particularly in this deskless area, in yeah. the deskless jobs, because that's where the shortages are really large. The last thing that I really liked and I never really thought about was she said that in a deskless job, their well-being tends to be better because the scheduling is better, the breaks are better. That was that, fascinating. And I guess the other thing that I'll say, and I can totally relate, is you're actually doing something concrete. I don't know. I mean, my job is managing my inbox and creating PowerPoint slides. I mean, I've always thought. In the ideal world, one day a week, I'd work in a deskless job where I'd get out of my desk and I'd go and I'd build something or I'd move something. Sure. You know, what do you do? And- you move yourself to the airport, Steve. <laughs> you know, I want to be able to point at something and say, I built that. <laughs> yeah. I guess I point at my books. I wrote that. <laughs> Well, I I hear you. So to kind of go back, there were a couple of things she mentioned too. When you are looking at employer, how do you choose your employer? What questions do you ask? Is there a long-term career here? Was a great one. I love her advice about resources too, because again, I think we hear Glassdoor a lot, but not everybody thinks to look at Reddit, for example, or, or Google reviews. So there are resources out there you can really hunt through to get a preview of an employer as well. So to your point, you know, there are ways to appropriately raise questions to your employer if you feel stuck, but there are also ways to review the next employer if you are stuck and you choose to move on. These can be fantastic long-term career jobs, but you want to make sure that you get in the right employer because they also can be very miserable in some cases. And so it's a matter of finding that right employer, but now's a good time. We're really empowered. So with that, shall we sign out? Let's do it. All right. That's our show for today, everyone. Thanks to our guest, Muriel Clausen of Anthill for joining us today. Thanks to the Open SAP team for supporting free accessible education for the masses. Thanks to Robbie Echeverria for editing, scheduling, and being a one-person army for this podcast. If you have enjoyed our show, we hope to have earned a new subscriber and maybe even a quick rating. It sure helps other people find this podcast. We'll be sure to get you more information in our show notes. So if you're looking for more from Muriel Clausen, myself, Robert Richardson, or the ever-prolific Dr. Steve Hunt, whose new book, Talent Tectonics, I just saw, is available for pre-order coming September 7th, 2022. I promise Steve didn't put me up to that. Go ahead and hop on our show notes. We look forward to seeing you on the next podcast because what matters? Well, today 
Deskless workers matter. Work matters. Thanks for joining us on the Work Matters Podcast.